online. Our scripture reading is from Genesis 3, 8 through 13. This is found on page 3 in your pew Bible. If you don't own a Bible, we'd love for you to take that one home as a gift. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, said to him Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Lisa, for reading God's Word for us and welcoming us. Uh, as I said a little bit earlier, my name is uh, Paul Brandis, and I serve here uh, at the Brookside campus as uh, the associate pastor. And uh, I just want to take a moment to pause and thank uh, each and every one of you. What a joy it was to be able to uh, dedicate our second son, Owen, this morning. And, uh, and what a powerful moment to hear each of you affirm uh, your, your help in that. So I'll be calling all of you for babysitting later. Um, <laughs> But in all seriousness, Ashley and I have been part of this wonderful community for about three and a half years now, and we really have felt in such incredible ways your love and care for not only us, but also uh, our two boys, Bevan and, so Bevan and Owen. And so I'm grateful for each and every one of you, and I'm, I'm grateful you're here this morning. Thank you for starting your week out with us, and uh, let's ask God for help as we open his word together. Father in heaven, thank you uh, that you don't save us just as individuals, but save us into a family. And I am particularly grateful for this uh, local expression of that family, Lord, the Brookside Campus of Christ Community. And I pray for us uh, here and now as we open Genesis 3 together. Uh, help us to reckon with what is difficult in, these passage, in this passage, um, but understand on the other side um, the goodness uh, that it contains as well. And uh, I pray, Lord, that you would speak through me and that I would decrease as you increase. In your name we pray, amen. Well, recently I listened to a podcast. Some of you may be familiar with it. It's, it's uh, gone viral at different points, but it's called Memory Palace. Memory Palace. And I listened to a particular episode where I heard a story uh, about a guy named George Arthur Gardner. George Arthur Gardner. In 1870, Gardner was on business in Boston, and uh, he had the unfortunate happening of developing a toothache. And his cousin that he was staying with or that he was in Boston recommended a local dentist so that he could get a filling and go on with, with his work. Well, unfortunately for Gardner, this was during the brief, and let's hope it was a very brief period in history, where dentists put a dash of arsenic in the filling to kill the nerves. Yes, arsenic, the chemical element that has its own Wikipedia page titled, Arsenic Poisonings. And maybe unsurprisingly, then, Gardner's story was contained in the Memory Palace episode titled, Horrible Deaths. The narrator of the episode concluded Gardner's story by saying, they stopped putting arsenic in fillings after that. I mean, you think, right? And as someone who just received his first, first tooth filling a couple months ago, I'm really glad they did this. And I think it's 
stories like this one that lead us to the widespread belief in our culture that newer is always better. Newer is always better. Maybe you've heard that one before. I mean, after the dental arsenic story, it's kind of hard to argue with, isn't it? And I think that's why we've named it as a common cultural assumption here in 21st century America. During this teaching series, A Story Worth Living, we've been examining some of our most common cultural assumptions and stories. The last couple months, we've tackled You Only Live Once, YOLO. We've tackled Be True to Yourself, I Decide What's Right, and more. These cultural stories are the water that we swim in, and they're extremely powerful. They shape us in ways we're not even aware of. So it's important to stop and take temperature of the water. That's been our aim with this teaching series. We've wanted to press in to these narratives and ask, what's true of this story that we tell ourselves, that we live out? What's not true of this story, of this narrative? And where does the gospel speak in? Well, this morning, we'll turn those questions to our love of progress, to our obsession with what's fresh instead of tired, to the cultural narrative that newer is always better. And as we've already seen this morning, our first point is that new things aren't bad. New things aren't bad. I mean, aren't you glad with me that dentists abandoned arsenic 150 years ago? I am. Frankly, it's impossible to deny technology has produced some amazing results. A couple years ago, the website Vox.com interviewed a guy named Charles Kenny. Kenny works at the Center for Global Development, and he's authored several books, including one titled Getting Better, Why Global Development is Succeeding, and How We Can Improve the World Even More. In this interview, the the interviewer asked him to, to give an optimistic view of the last 50 years in our history, and he responds by saying this, it's almost easier to tell you what isn't getting better. Life expectancy has gone up worldwide. Child mortality has shot down. The number of kids who die before the age of five has halved worldwide in the last 20 years. The number of people dying of violence, either on the battlefield or from domestic violence or from murder, is dropping pretty much worldwide. In 2013, there wasn't a single declared interstate war. The number of countries that are democratic has been increasing. And the number of countries that really do respect their civil political rights is more generally going up. He paints a positive picture. And perhaps most importantly, he concludes his answer by saying this, and if you look at beer consumption, it's also going up worldwide. Okay, maybe that's not most important. But you look at at this article and others in his book, by almost any metric, it's, it's hard to deny that progress has been made. It's hard to deny that new things aren't bad. There is much to be celebrated. And I think we'd be remiss if we didn't point out here that this progress that we've experienced is part of God's plan. God's not up in heaven surprised by the advancements that humankind has made. We didn't catch him off guard by progressing and moving forward and making things better. Throughout this teaching series, we've been mining Genesis, the book of Genesis in the Bible, chapters 1 through 3. It's our origin story. We've returned to our roots and we've been unpacking it. We believe that God inspired Moses to write these chapters, at least in part, to challenge the popular cultural stories of his day. And along the way, what we've discovered is that they have continued relevance for us today, 2,000 or more years later. 
we've discovered that these stories both affirm but also challenge our own cultural stories. And in a moment, we'll dive deeper into the passage that Lisa read for us from Genesis 3, but right now I want to take a look at a verse that Bill unpacked a couple Sundays ago, Genesis 2.15, and that reads this way. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. First, I don't want you to miss who is really driving the bus in this verse. The beginning of verse 15 starts by saying, the Lord God. The Lord God took the man and put him into the garden. What we understand from how this verse begins and where it lays its note of emphasis is that work is God-directed. Work is God-ordained. God himself is a worker that, that bursts off of the page as you read the first chapters of Genesis. He himself is a worker, and by creating us in his image, then what he has made in humans is fellow workers. We're workers. We are workers who are called and commissioned by God, the two words in Genesis 2.15 here, to keep and work his creation. Keep and work. And as Bill described, part of what this means is that we were designed to partner with God to make something of this world, to, to create new things and to create even better things out of God's creation, which has latent potentiality. Our lead senior pastor, Tom Nelson, described the idea this way in his book, Work Matters, and he writes this, From Genesis 2, we see that the earth itself was created in order to be cultivated and shaped by humankind, Unspoiled, pristine nature is not necessarily a preferred state. God designed that there would be harmonious human cooperation within the creation order. Not only would humanity, the crown of creation, have joy, joyful intimacy with their creator, but they would also be given the joyful privilege of contribute, contributing to the work of God in his good world. So no, new things aren't bad because progress is part of God's plan. Progress is part of God's plan. I think this point is made as well if we examine both the beginning and then the end of the biblical story. If we look at the settings of each one of those scenes, then we'll see this point made. So we've been studying the beginning of our story and the, and the setting in which is in a garden. In Genesis 1 through 3, we start in a garden. This painting it's a famous painting of the Garden of Eden. It's by Thomas Cole, created in 1828. And I think it beautifully captures the beginning of our story from Genesis 1 through 3. Humanity starts in a garden. But interestingly, at the end of the story, if we fast forward and examine that scene, we don't return to a garden. That's not the scene. But instead, we're in a city, the New Jerusalem. And so we see that humanity, in partnership with God, as we work his creation, moves from a garden to a city. Now, how are we supposed to do that without progress? We couldn't. So again, we see that new things aren't bad because progress is part of God's plan. And this is how the Genesis story affirms our cultural story of newer is always better. Progress is part of God's plan, so new things are good. But again, the, the, the Genesis stories don't just affirm what we believe and live out, it also challenges. And so while we see that it's true that new things aren't bad, we also see that what's true is that new things aren't good enough. They're not bad, but they're not good enough. 
You see, part of the problem with this cultural narrative of newer is always better is that it contains quite a bit of arrogance. We learn a new truth and then we immediately look with disdain on those who came before us. How could they do that, believe that, think that, say that? But baked into that line of thinking is a belief that we know everything there is to know right here and now. A belief that we've finally arrived. A belief that that no one after us will discover anything that will make us look foolish. But how arrogant is that? No, the truth is that our grandkids and and our great-grandkids, they'll look at some of the things that we did and believed and said and they'll go, how could they have done that? What's true is that newer is sometimes wrong. Newer is sometimes wrong. It's not always better. So how are we supposed to know when newer is better and when it isn't? Well, we have to ask the question behind the question. Newer is always better has caught on in our culture because there's also a widespread belief that something is wrong with us, wrong with the world. So, So let's ask that question. What is wrong with the world? What are we progressing from? Well, some would say what is wrong with the world is a lack of technology. Part of the reason why we've had such an incredible last 50 years, as reported by Charles Kenny, is because the, the graph, as you look at new technologies, it's exponential. It's a hockey stick, as we have just exploded in new technologies. And so people who make this argument, they point this out, and then they say that, that they look at those vast improvements, and then they put ultimate hope in technology, that one day continued improvements there will cure all of our diseases, end all of our wars, and solve all human problems. And and that's a compelling thought in some respects. There are many more problems that hopefully one day we will be able to solve with technology. But, and I think rightly so, there are people on both sides of this discussion. For every person placing ultimate hope in technology, on the other side of the equation, you can find a dystopian story that warns about the dangers of too much progress in technology. I mean, I am robot anyone, right? So no, technology won't ultimately save us. Others don't try to answer what's wrong with the world, and and instead they simply champion the undeniable progress that we've made. But that's ultimately unsatisfying as well because it begs and avoids the important question of what are we progressing from? Is Is it just antiquated thinking? Is it just kind of the bad stuff back then? What is wrong with us that we need to progress from? Well, Genesis 3 provides the answer. And the answer is not fun, but we do need to reckon with it. Friends, new things aren't good enough because we are cursed. New things aren't good enough because we are cursed. And I realize that sounds odd, and it it might even sound a little bit melodramatic. Really, Paul, we're, we're cursed? What does that even mean? Genesis 3 lays it out for us. And and earlier we heard Lisa read verses 8 through 13 for us. And and those verses immediately follow Adam and Eve's rebellion against God. They eat from the tree of the knowledge and good good and evil. And the verses that Lisa read tell what happens after that. And hearing those verses, you may have wondered a little bit about God. I mean, he kind of walks into the scene and he, he asks of Adam and Eve, he says, Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And that's a tad worrisome, isn't it? I mean, shouldn't we expect God to already know whether they ate of the tree or not? 
But what's happening here is actually fascinating. On the surface, it seems as though God is asking for information that he doesn't know, but, but he's not. He's asking for relationship. God already knows informationally that Adam and Eve have rebelled. But incredibly, even in spite of that, he is still seeking to know relationally the crown of his creation, even though they've rebelled against him and brought sin into the world. But how do Adam and Eve respond to God in the verses that Lisa read for us? It's tragic, isn't it? First, they hide from him, deeply ashamed. Then, when God confronts them with their sin, they immediately turn to blame shifting. Not my fault, says Adam, pointing at Eve. Me? Says Eve, no way, it was that snake that you put here. Another way to understand verses 9 through 13 is to read them as an investigation. Our God, we know, is just, right, and true, which necessarily means that he has to deal with what is unjust, wrong, and false. But it also means that he won't do so without a fair investigation. And in Genesis 3, upon conclusion of his investigation, God delivers his judgment. That's verses 14 through 19 of Genesis 3, and it's the curse, the curse against Satan and against us. Now, broadly, what this curse means is that humanity has a fatal flaw, that no matter how far we progress, we'll still fall short every time. It's almost like humanity is a house that's built in the worst of floodplains. No matter how far we advance, no matter how much we clean up, build, create, add on, it'll rain and flood again and again and again. That's broadly what the curse means. Specifically, though, we see that the curse is personal, corporate, and supernatural. First, the curse is personal. I've already mentioned Adam's response to God, Adam and Eve's response to God in Genesis 3 when God seeks them out. They run and they hide, ashamed. Their vertical intimacy with God that they had before they fell, before they sinned, before they rebelled, it's shattered. Sin and the curse have disrupted and destroyed the vertical intimacy that they once had with God. And and we follow in their footsteps. Our vertical intimacy with God has too been shattered by our sin and by the curse that we are under. But it's not just our vertical intimacy with God that was broken by the curse. It's also our horizontal intimacy with one another. We see this laid out for us. As God delivers our curse, he says to Eve in Genesis 3.16, Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. The tragedy of this can't be overstated. This is such a reversal of what God had prior set up the marriage relationship as. In Genesis 2, when we see that enacted, we know that the marriage relationship is designed to be open, to be selfless, to be sacrificial. But we see here in Genesis 3, God saying, because of the curse, because of sin, what's going to happen now in the marriage relationship is it's marred by conflict. There's going to be fighting, dissension. You will hide from one another. There will be a struggle for power, and each half of the marriage relationship will force themselves and their way on the other. And as we all know and experience, this horizontal brokenness is not just cordoned off to our marriages. 
All of our human relationships suffer from these same struggles. All of our horizontal intimacy that we were able to have with one another before the fall is now broken by sin and by the curse. We hide from one another, not sure if we can or should trust because we've all been burned before. I mean, even consider the first piece of technology we ever made. Post-fall, Adam and Eve fashioned clothes for themselves out of fig leaves. Why? So that they can hide from one another and that they can hide from God. Maybe that sounds a, a tad odd, fig leaves as technology to hide, but I'll admit that this matches my lived experience. All too often, I hem, haw, hesitate, and hide from others, all because deep down I feel the reality of the curse, and I know that I am broken. Anyone with me on that? The truth is that there is no technology that can fix the shame in us, that can heal the wounds we have to cover. There is no technology that will bring us out of hiding. The curse is personal, shattering our vertical intimacy with God and our horizontal intimacy with one another. But that's not all. The curse is also corporate. The curse is corporate. The problem of the curse would be big enough if it remained personal, but it doesn't. The truth is that we're also corporately cursed. Because remember, God created us as communal and as relational beings. I mean, that doesn't go away after the fall. It just gets really, really messy. That part of our DNA is still there. It's just marred and broken. So the reality and what happens is that broken people get together and build broken families, broken cities, broken governments, broken institutions. Sin moves from the personal to the structural really quickly. Even just a few chapters later in Genesis 11, we see a tragic example of this. It's the story of the Tower of Babel where local government officials get together and decide to build a really tall tower up to God, all to show him who's really boss. The text tells us that they're doing this to make a name for themselves. Just eight chapters after the curse, we barely blink and we see an entire city getting together, spending money, creating policy, and embarking upon a project of systemic pride and evil. And God is rightly concerned by this corporately sinful effort. And so he says in Genesis 11, verses 6 and 7, Behold, they are one people and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they purpose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their speech so that they may not understand one another's speech. Now, I realize that these verses may sound a tad strange, but the point to understand from this passage is that God was so concerned about humanity's corporate capacity, if we were to work together sinfully for sin and evil, that he shut down the building project, knowing the harm that we could do together. You see, God knew and God knows that one sinner plus one sinner does not equal two sinners. The effect when sinners get together is not just additive, it's exponential because the curse upon us is not just personal, it's also corporate. Dr. Brian Fickert, director of the Chalmers Center for Economic Development and the author of a number of books, including the incredible When Helping Hurts, he spoke at our Common Good Conference in 2015 
on this very subject, and, and he did it from this very platform where I'm at right here in this room. And here's what he said. Broken individuals create broken social structures. We've got broken economic, political, religious, and social structures. The road on which the human being is being asked to travel is full of potholes. Those broken systems, including the broken economic system, they impose themselves on us. We create broken systems, and broken systems then further break us. Folks, we've got a personal curse problem. We do. The curse affects each and every one of us individually. But then, but then we get together and we build broken systems, broken structures. So our curse problem isn't just personal, it's also corporate. And finally, the curse is also supernatural. Don't forget, Satan is a character in this narrative in Genesis 3. He's incarnate in the serpent, the snake. And when God delivers his judgment in verses 14 through 19, he starts with the snake. Genesis 3:14. The Lord God said to the serpent, "Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life." And yes, as as Pastor Nathan talked about last week, the presence of Satan talking through a snake strikes our modern sensibilities a bit like a silly fantasy. I think he likened it kind of to the the troll under the bridge. And it is easy, if we're not careful, to, to just picture Satan as some fake literary creature that's not really out there fighting against us, that's not really out there mocking and laughing at us. This is why my all-time favorite movie quote comes from The Usual Suspects, where a char- it's a little bit of a throwaway line, but one of the characters says this, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he doesn't exist. I mean, isn't that what has largely happened in our culture? What if... And I know this is a big if, but what if Satan is able to work largely unabated because a huge portion of the world doesn't believe that he's real? Well, the devil hasn't convinced the whole world that he doesn't exist. In 1994, just over 20 years ago, the country of Rwanda experienced one of the most horrific genocides in the whole of human history. Millions killed and slaughtered Here are the words of Romeo Dallier, the UN peacekeeper at that time. He was in Rwanda, but he was commanded to stand by and do nothing. He watched the genocide happen outside of his window. He wrote this, I know there is a God because in Rwanda I shook hands with the devil. I have seen him, I have smelled him, and I have touched him. I know the devil exists, and therefore I know there is a God. There is a personal supernatural evil, supernatural evil that wants you to destroy the people you love most. There is a personal supernatural evil that wants governments to promote injustice, genocide, racism, and holocausts. There is a personal supernatural evil who is seeking our destruction, and his name is Satan. But don't forget, Satan is also cursed. We read part of it before, Genesis 3.14. Let's look back again and this time read through verse 15. 
where God says, I will put enmity between you, the snake, and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. These verses, they so, they so powerfully declare that sin will not have the final word. This verse, Genesis 3.15, it declares that the curse will not be permanent. And it's incredible, isn't it? Because even while delivering the judgment that Satan deserved, while delivering the judgment that we deserved, we see so clearly here from God a, a glimmer of gospel hope. We see that one day he will destroy sin and evil for good. Genesis 3.15 is the promise that though the first woman, Eve, brought death into the world, God would one day call another woman, Mary, to bring the one who is life into the world. Genesis 3.15 is the promise that though the first man, Adam, brought about the curse on humanity, God would one day enter our world as the son of man to bring about righteousness and salvation for humanity. And Genesis 3.15 is the promise that one day Jesus will return to destroy the presence of sin by making all things new, recreating the world as the new heavens and the new earth. So yes, new things aren't bad, but they also aren't good enough. But powerfully in Genesis 3.15, we see the first glimmer of hope that one day all things will be made new again because God doesn't give up. All things will be made new again because God doesn't give up. And this glimmer of hope in Genesis 3.15, which, which scholars and authors, they call it the proto-euangelion. It's the first instance of the gospel in our Bible. And how beautiful that it comes right in the midst of the judgment. This glimmer of gospel hope. By the end of the story, if we fast forward and flip our Bibles all the way to the back, this glimmer of gospel hope becomes a full-blown picture. So Revelation 21, verses 2 through 5, read this way. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. From the moment sin entered the world, God was already beginning to work his work to redeem and restore his broken creation, to bring humanity back to the tree of life that we lost in the garden. Because you see, as the book of Revelation unfolds, what we, what we notice is that the tree of life that was in the garden of Eden is now in the center of the new city in the new creation. So one chapter later in Revelation 22, we read this, then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life. The tree of life that, that as a service to us, right, God blocked off the tree of life from Adam and Eve and he, he sent them out of the Garden of Eden. And now it's, it's judgment, but it's also grace. I mean, would you want to live forever the way you're living right now? I know I wouldn't. And so as an act of grace, God blocked off the tree of life and sent us out of the garden. 
because he knew that one day what needed to happen would happen and sin would be totally and completely eradicated so that the tree of life would become a good thing to us once again. And here it is in the middle of the city. So the whole of the Bible can be summed up in the story of three trees. You have the story, uh, the story begins with life as it ought to be. The tree of life is in the center of the garden. And the story ends with the new creation life as it one day will be again with the tree of life in the center of the new Jerusalem. And to get from the tree of life that we lost in the garden to the tree of life that we aspire for in the new city, the pathway to that is through the tree of crucifixion that Jesus suffered upon to rescue us from the curse and to make us new. We see this probably most clearly in the book of Galatians, chapter 3, verse 13. And it reads this way, Jesus redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hanged on a tree. New things aren't bad, but new things aren't good enough because our root problem is that we are all cursed But the best news is that through Jesus Christ, he not only became the curse for us by dying in our place, he also secured new life for us through his resurrection. So now what? How ought we to respond to that great and glorious story? Two ideas briefly as we close. First, don't give up. Keep working to make all things new. If all things will one day be made new because God doesn't give up, then we shouldn't give up either. Keep working to make all things new now. This work doesn't start when Jesus comes back for a second time. It's already underway, and it's been underway since Genesis 3. So are you participating, working faithfully for love, justice, and freedom, creating, cultivating, adding, progressing, making things new again even now? This belief and this charge is why we're so committed to the common good. The Pastors Network that we launched back in 2015, Made to Flourish, it's hosting the Common Good Conference 2017. It's a conference that's not just for pastors. It's coming up in a couple weeks, Friday, October 13th, and there are still tickets available. Make plans to join us as we consider together how we might increase human flourishing for all people. And however you do it, whatever your work is, Don't give up. Keep at it. Keep at it, making all things new even now. But secondly, trust in Jesus, he who will make all things new. While you're working, be careful not to trust ultimately in your work or in your progress or in our progress because that's what happens, isn't it? We become so proud of how far we've come that we forget the one who empowered us to do so. Our work of creating new things and progressing forward will not ultimately be good enough. We can't work our way out of the curse hard as we might try. But the good news is that we don't have to because in his death, Jesus took the curse upon himself and he defeated it with his resurrection. And now he is working with us to make all things new. And that's a project that he won't ever abandon or give up on. So we can trust in him that when our work falls short, He'll fill the gap. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you um, that you sent your son Jesus, that he took the curse upon himself and then defeated death and the curse 
three days later, that we might trust in his life, death, and resurrection and be granted access to the tree of eternal life. Father, we pray um, for our work. We pray that we would um, contribute to the common good and, and work hard to make all things new. But we pray, Lord, that we wouldn't ultimately trust in our work, but instead would trust in your son, Jesus. And it is in his name we pray. Amen.